Hello and welcome to Time in the Market, an Invesco podcast series for UK professional investors. I'm Ben Gutteridge, your host, a failed TV celebrity desperate for a bit of attention, but also an investment director from within Invesco's multi-asset strategies division. In this series, we'll be interviewing some of the highest profile names from in and around the financial industry and from both within and without Invesco. But before the action begins, we want to stress this interview should not be considered as investment advice and remind you that any capital invested is always capital at risk. Finally, we would encourage you to listen to some further important information immediately following the interview. Thank you and on with the show. Hello, everyone, and a warm welcome to the first of Invesco's rebranded Time in the Market podcast series. And uh, in keeping with this seminal moment and following only a handful of knockbacks from other guests, we're thrilled to welcome Invesco's head of global equities and fund manager, Stephen Annis. Stephen, how are you? Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Ben. Uh, I'm very well. Thank you very much for having me. I'm uh, delighted to be here for this uh, for this seminal moment, as you say. Well, we're delighted to have you. And of course, you're always our, our number one choice after such good performances in our, our prior podcast efforts. But as I said, a new revamped series and a few changes. But what is still the case is we're going to be focusing on investments. Over the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to be talking a little bit about the macro backdrop. But we're going to spend most of our time debating stocks across a few sectors, financials, tech, energy, and uh, a few more if we have time too. But before that, we open with our new regular and exciting feature, Prefer or Defer. It's 10 quick fire closed questions for Stephen, where he's going to respond with his preferred choice. And if it's too tricky, and we ask him to avoid this if possible, but if it's too tricky, he can defer. And this all together should give us some valuable insights into both Stephen, the investor, and the person. Are you keen, Stephen? Keen might be strong, but let's go for it. Okay. Well, we don't have a jingle, but uh, let us now begin with prefer or defer. Developed or emerging markets? Developed. US or Europe? US. Large cap or small cap? Mid cap. Insurance or banks? Insurance. Energy or miners? Energy. Arsenal or Man City? Defer. Fortnite or FIFA? FIFA. Warren Buffett or Chris Hemsworth? Buffett. Cross trainer or bicep curls? Bicep curls. Nightclub or bridge? Neither. Defer. <laughs> a, few, a few defers in there, Stephen, but a really good effort. Uh, and I you. think we're really grateful for you taking part and for being such a good sport. And it gives us like a real platform, I think, to talk about investments, actually, which we'll do now in between bicep curls. So, Stephen, just a few short weeks ago, like the threat of financial meltdown was sort of gripping markets. But that, that sort of prospective crisis almost seems like it's come and gone. I don't know if there's sort of anything of significance that's changed in your mind as a result of that banking turmoil that like investors should be aware of. Well, look, I, th- I think, I mean, Ben, you make a good point. It, it, it's sort of all gone quite quiet, hasn't it, really, which is which is sort of surprising given what felt at the time to be a very severe issue. And I, look, I think it is. Well, I think perhaps just taking a step back, when you think about what happened, you know, banks have sort of two main risks. And we've all worried about one of those risks, which is credit risk for a long time. And that's the thing that typically, you know, banks lend money to the wrong people. They don't pay it back. And, you know, that creates a problem on the balance sheet. And that's obviously what we saw in the GFC and, and generally what you see in banks. What we haven't seen, of course, for a long time is, is interest rate risk, which is where a bank mismatches its assets and its liabilities, which you know, is in effect what 
Silicon Valley Bank did. And and let's start with SVB. You know, look, I do think SVB was a pretty unique situation and their balance sheet was was extreme. And, you know, they had a pretty narrow customer base that was mostly commercial customers. Um, so therefore, deposit flight was um, was relatively easy. And obviously, we saw just how rapid that was as the bank failed. But they also had uh, on the asset side of the balance sheet, they'd bought spread of very long duration bonds. And that, you know, that created a problem as they started to see deposit outflows. And their their customer base was, of course, generally companies which were sort of, you know, cash burning and an investment phase. And so that led to, you know, a very challenging backdrop for the for the business. I think it is worth saying that yeah, SVB, and many of the smaller banks in the US are not regulated in the same way that um, their larger brethren are. And also, you know, that's the same in Europe and Asia. You know, all, all banks are regulated the same, irrespective of size. You know, the US is the sort of anomaly in that these smaller banks weren't regulated to the same extent. So, you know, I think you know, from an investment perspective, what will we see? You know, I think the specific changes will be that we'll see more regulation for some of those smaller uh, US regional banks. And I think, look, as investors, we probably all need to be more mindful of interest rate risk in banks. And finally, you know, thinking about the you know, the risk of deposit flight increasing over time with you know increasing use of technology, you know, that's that's definitely something I think perhaps we haven't thought about. But I think more broadly, what I would take away from it is that you know this is symptomatic of a change in the environment. You know, change in interest rates. Um, we've gone from years of very low and flat rates to significant rate hikes and obviously a very inverted yield curve at the moment. And that's just creating strains in the system. And, you know, Credit Suisse then was a victim of the of the spotlight shone on it by you know, the, the, the crisis that erupted post SVB. So I think I would expect more sort of strains to emerge at various places in, in the system. But as it pertains specifically to the banks, I think it was a relatively isolated issue with SVB because of the confluence of factors that I, I talked through. Moving on from that then, and a final high level sort of macro question for you before we talk about stocks is that, uh, and I guess it sort of loosely retains to stuff we've already talked about, but the market does still seem very driven by like evolving inflation prints and what it means for interest rate expectations. Do you have a view on this? And is that view sort of encouraging you to lean in any direction within the investment mandates you oversee? Look, we, we, we try to be sort of fairly humble, if I'm honest, Ben, about our ability to predict the macro. I mean, look, we do we do think broadly about you know, where we think we are in broad terms in a cycle, but we're not trying to predict you know, GDP to the sort of nearest decimal point. In terms of big picture perspective, I would say that the, the, the response to COVID was was enormous in terms of monetary and fiscal. And I think that largesse was, was kept in place too long. Combined then with supply chain disruption and energy crisis post the sort of Ukraine-Russia war, yeah, and this creation of excess money, it, it was sort of inevitable that we would have a period of inflation. Look, I actually think inflation will trend down. It already is. I think if you look at the last sort of five inflation crises, this is following a fairly clear path if you average those five. However, I, I don't think we're going back to the sort of post-GFC period. I think that was the anomalous period. I think you know, we will likely live in a period now where we have uh, perhaps a little bit more in volatility in inflation. So whilst I think it will trend down, I don't think it will go back to where it was. I think that means discount rates are going up for equity investors. So valuations generally will probably be lower than they um, perhaps were in the last sort of five to 10 years. 
And I think we've already begun to see that, obviously, in some of the sort of tech route that we saw um, in 2022. And I think also, you know, fiscal policy is becoming more dominant. So things such as the the CHIPS Act in the US, the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, that's um, you know, the, the, the transition to sort of green energy. You know, those types of things are going to create quite different situations in terms of supply chains, commodity prices, et cetera. And I also think it's pretty clear at the moment that, um, you know, in, in some areas of the world, in certain sectors, labor has a greater bargaining power. So that's going to potentially crimp corporate margins and, and again, mean that inflation is likely to remain slightly higher than it has been in the recent past and, and probably more volatile. Thanks for that, Stephen. We'll move away from the macro and focus now on companies, but more of a sort of sector question to begin. We'll look at financials. And I know in that infamous preferral defer round, you said you preferred insurance over banks, but financials is a broad sector, uh, more than just insurance and banks. I mean, are there any other areas of interest to you or is it indeed insurance that's uh, the preferred area? As you say, Ben, it's it's a pretty broad sector. So perhaps if I think about yeah, where we're positioned within the strategies that we run. Look, banks, we're actually uh, underweight. We own JP Morgan and Standard Chartered. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, the very different situation to what's gone on in the US regionals. We are overweight in insurance, and that's auto insurance in the US. We also own um, AIA in Asia, uh, one of the world's largest life insurance businesses. We also own two private equity businesses. So look, just, you know, perhaps just using one of those as an example, 3i, about 55, 60% of the uh, the NAV, the net asset value of 3i is actually a discount retailer called Action, European discount retailer. Now, yeah, that's a brilliant business, huge runway for growth, high returns on capital, yeah, really, really defensive growth business. And yeah, in this kind of environment, it feels like exactly the kind of business that one would want to own in the fund. And yeah, I think critically, though, you buy that asset via the, the 3i vehicle, which happens to be listed as a as a private equity business, even though, as I say, most of the portfolio is made up of sort of, uh, you know, defensive growth assets. Yeah, the other area that we own uh, some positions in, in exchanges, so uh, intercontinental exchange in the US, which again, generally pretty defensive businesses, resilient, and actually, you know, we, we, we touched earlier, Ben, on the, on the sort of discussion around volatility picking up. Yeah, you know, some of those businesses can benefit from volatility as as you know market participants across a range of asset classes are forced to hedge you know interest rate risk and volatility and that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, so actually, you know, a more volatile backdrop can be you know hugely positive for those businesses. So you know, a very uh, a very broad range. And I think you know worth saying that in the sort of context of of the issues in the US regionals and SVB in particular, yeah, you, know, you can't have the kind of deposit flight that you saw from SVB in. An insurance company, for instance, right? That that actually is impossible. So just worth making that distinction that they're not subject to the same kinds of risks that those those banks were. Okay, so I mean, looking at yeah, I mean that makes a lot of sense on the insurance side. But what then are the consequences, or is there a shoe to drop with their assets, their sort of securities portfolio, like having lost a decent amount of money through interest rate rises? Are, are there no consequences to that? Well, uh, to that not. not not really, because the, the the key difference is that you know, what happened at SVB was that the, it wasn't that the assets that they held went bad. The challenge was because the deposits blew out the door, you had to sell assets at less than par. So if you talk about, you know, think about a bond that would 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 eventually you know pay you out at par at at a hundred, you might have to sell that at seventy. So you would have to incur that loss of thirty. Say, I'm just using numbers as a broad example. You know, you'd have to take that loss as your deposits left the building to fund them. 
in an insurance company, if you don't have the deposit, um, the sort of deposit outflow, i.e. the liability outflow, which you can't have in, a, in an insurance company, you're not forced to sell the assets at a loss. You hold them to maturity, in which case you don't crystallize that challenge in the interim period and you don't have a problem. The, the, the problem you face as an insurance company is is more the sort of credit risk that I touched on earlier for a bank. So an insurance company has to pick its bonds carefully and make sure that the bonds and the securities it buys, you know, do ultimately pay out with the, you know, anticipated flow of, of cash flow. And then, you know, that's sort of, uh, you know, paying out a part. So, you know, the, it, you take a sort of investment risk, but the companies that we own have, you know, very broad balance sheets, very diverse and frankly, excellent track records of making sure that they are not subject to any of those investment risks over time. Okay, thanks, Stephen. Move on from there. If when I sort of look at individual names in your strategies, I can see sort of Broadcom featuring. Now, this host is familiar enough with the business to know it operates within the world of semiconductors, microchips, but it uh, can be a bit confusing to remember like exactly in what, what capacity. So can you sort of remind us, or I guess rather me, you know, what Broadcom's niche is and like to whom it serves who its customer base is. Yeah, yeah, sure. So look, I, I think actually it's interesting you, were, you used the word niche because I think that's kind of how the company would think about it. So they have a number of, of, of sort of sub areas that they supply into where they want to be the dominant market share owner in those franchise areas, as they call them. So Broadcom has both semiconductor revenue and it also has some software as well. I think the easiest way to think about Broadcom would be to say that it, it is principally in the data transfer business. So a few years back, Broadcom released a, a statistic that they believe that over 99.9% of all internet traffic at some point crosses through at least one Broadcom microchip. So yeah, their, their chips are in, in the data centers uh, and they sort of process and sort data in, in servers and, and around the data center. They've got a big market share there. And obviously, you know, growth in AI, machine learning, general data consumption will will drive that business. Uh, they will have chips in your in your home router you know, at home for Wi-Fi. Uh, they're a big supplier into Apple. So in your in your iPhone, Ben, if you're an Apple user, you'll find that they provide the Wi-Fi chips and the chips for wireless charging. And then you know, if I think about somewhere like Invesco, you know, we will have most probably Broadcom chips somewhere in our in our storage facilities or data storage, obviously, not in the not in the warehouse. And um, yeah, so, so, yeah, as I said, sort of mostly data transfer and, and, and networking. Um, but I think, you know, critically dominant market shares and run by an, an excellent capital allocator who has been very successful at you know, dominating those those niche areas. Well, I mean, it's obviously a very exciting area that I'd like to talk more about. But I think there's somewhere there's another business that's even more exciting in your strategies that we need to touch upon. And that's Viralia and uh, <laughs> the fact that it makes sort of glass bottles. I mean, there is just so much to discuss here. I mean, you'll have to hone in really on the important bits. But, uh, you know, what what is it about sort of that type of business that could be you know, really exciting for you? I mean, it doesn't obviously strike us as a fabulous growth opportunity. No, probably fair to say not quite as exciting as the uh, Broadcom uh, networking uh, networking business. No, I think what we really like about Viralia is actually is is the sort of supply demand dynamics. So as you said, it's not necessarily the best growth business out there. Um, you know, long term demand for for their products, glass bottles, is 
you know, sort of low to mid single digit. What's interesting to us is that is is that you know supply has generally been constrained for some time. You know, demand has actually been a bit more resilient. And what this has given the this this business and this this industry is actually more pricing power. Typically, you cannot transport glass bottles very far because it's you know, they, they weigh quite a lot, and obviously they're you know, typically empty from manufacture to then be filled. So. You can't move them a long way. And so these businesses operate as local oligopolies effectively. And that's led, as I said, to sort of strong pricing power. So actually, you know, Viralia and, and I can't remember the number exactly, but it, I think last 12 months, you know, revenues grown in the 20 percent, which would really surprise you, I'm sure. And look, that isn't a sustainable growth rate over the long term, but it's a good demonstration that an environment of you know, rising energy costs and a tight demand supply situation, Viralia has been able to put prices onto its to its end customers. And, and you know, critically, it is a low cost item in the value chain of customers. So think about uh, a bottle of wine and, and you and Mrs. Gutteridge are sharing tonight. And, and let's say you've spent £10 on that bottle of wine. The, the cost of the bottle is probably about 20 pence. And so it's a critical but low price um, item for customers. And so they've been able to Put prices through, and yeah, there's all there's also an environmental tailwind here that you know glass is infinitely recyclable, and so they. Can so is there something market. about Viralia? Sorry, to obviously we don't want to touch oh. on the environmental bit, but something about Viralia able to pass on its costs relative to other bottle makers. The whole industry has been able to pass pricing yeah. on generally, yeah, because it's it's been it's been a sort of tight supply demand situation for everybody. I mean, you know, Viralia has a solid different strategy to some of its peers, so it tends to focus on smaller. Um, vineyard producers and that kind of thing, rather than selling into, say, the major beer brewers. Um, and obviously, then your your sort of negotiation is is perhaps slightly more favourable because you're negotiating with lots of smaller customers rather than one or two outsized customers. So that's helped them. But I would say, look, generally the industry has been in a in a good spot in terms of pricing because of this supply demand dynamic. Okay, uh, and you mentioned the environmental tailwind. What's what? What are they doing on that regard? Yeah, the environmental tailwind is is partly driven by customers. In you know, people want glass. It's infinitely recyclable. Like, obviously, it's more of a premium product anyway. I mean, you, you wouldn't want your bottle of wine out of a uh, out of a plastic bottle. It's inert, yeah. obviously, when it comes back to taste and things. But they are doing a lot in terms of improving you know, the energy intensity of the business. So they're trying to build hybrid furnaces. They're focused on using uh, ever more recycled glass, which which lowers the energy intensity. So yeah, there's a lot going on here, and, and you know, critically though, you know, for us, you know, very good business, good growth, and a dividend yield, which is uh, uh, frankly very appealing. Thank you. Another name we see: Union Pacific, U.S. railroad stock. Like the market doesn't seem particularly interested in this name, and from a standing start, like you have some sympathy with that because, like, the prospect of a recession like is on the rise. So, what's your sort of uh, strategy here? Look, I, th- I think it would be fair to say in a in an economic slowdown or recession, look, this business will see volumes come down. I mean, it is it is in the business of shipping goods around the US. However, a little bit like we just talked about with Raleigh, you know, these are very sort of monopolistic stroke duopolistic businesses, which maintain good pricing power. I think look, critically as well, you know, the the challenges of reopening the economy post COVID and the sort of splurge in, in in consumer spending on certain goods created some real challenges for this business. So the West Coast ports, I'm sure, I'm sure you will have read, the West Coast ports became pretty clogged up. And and that 
congestion actually created quite significant operational challenges for Union Pacific, which really actually hit the margins over the last 12, 15 months. Look, I think it'd be very fair to say the business did not execute as well as it could and should have done. I think that is is definitely fair. So look, there's some idiosyncratic drivers here, which is you know the the end of the port congestion, getting the company back on the front foot. And there's a very sort of positive virtuous circle here once you get this of improving service standards, improving growth, taking market share off truck, off road, on, onto the rail network. And so, yes, there is definitely a concern around the, you know, a softer macro backdrop, but that's providing an opportunity to buy, you know, a brilliant company with a fantastic asset base and an attractive valuation. And then, as I said, these, these idiosyncratic points, which will hopefully be resolved by um, a new management team, at some stage in the near future, that should also provide a tailwind to the uh, to the profit and loss account. Okay, so the last sort of company specific question then, Microsoft, a company I'm sure all listeners are uh, are very familiar with, not necessarily the P&L and, and each strategy that it employs, but uh, but is there something that you think the market is like underappreciating here, given everyone's sort of vast knowledge on the subject? Or like, could it be, Stephen, dare I say, pointed question that sometimes fund managers like buy things, you know, big companies that are well run to help them sort of sleep a, a little better at night? It's definitely not the last part. Look, I think you know you and I have spoken enough times now. Look, I yeah, we we generally do like to buy things that are are misunderstood, perhaps a bit controversial at times. But look, I think it's fair to say, yeah, do, do people really misunderstand what Microsoft is? Yeah, we all know it. I, I think for, for the, the way we think about this though is that you know, Microsoft is effectively you know the heart and lungs of global business. It'd be very very hard to swap it out. I, you know, thinking about the kinds of businesses that would be difficult to replace, you know, Microsoft is probably right at the top of that list. And, you know, over time, they've generated very strong cash flows and used those cash flows to sort of reinvent themselves, create new products. And, you know, we, you know, internally, obviously, we all use Teams now and use that on video, which we which we didn't even do a few years ago. So I think that business, the sort of core Microsoft products that we all know about is very well embedded. And, and perhaps there's more to come through some of the sort of AI augmented office suite that is now starting to starting to be promoted, and I think let's secondly uh, and 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 super importantly, ninety percent of global IT spend is on premise, and Azure, which is the sort of Microsoft cloud business, is part of an oligopoly along with AWS, Amazon's business, and and also Google Cloud, but it's really AWS and Azure that are the main players. But that yeah, that is going to be a key part of moving you know, IT spend into the cloud. Yeah, that shift is going to take um, a, a long period of time. More stuff going into the cloud. So, I think you know, really, the key for us is is that yeah, this is an investment where we feel differently about the time horizon, the visibility, and the embedded nature of Microsoft. It's not about trying to have a position that we can feel happier sleeping at night. Frankly, okay, fair, fair enough, Stephen. And of course. I would uh, accede that that is entirely your position. You're not uh, buying benchmark positions. I know that. The um, the final question that I'll put to you is about the energy sector. I know you oversee sort of income mandates, and we'd think that yeah. energy is like a good source of income, but it looks a little conspicuous by its absence in your strategies. You know, what's the what's the rationale there? No, very fair, very fair question. Look, you're right. There's a lot of income in the sector. Hopefully, I guess what we've talked about today, you know, if you think about Microsoft, Broadcom, you know, Viralia, Union Pacific, you know, many of those companies are companies that, you know, I think I'd probably answer the questions to talking about growth. 
And you know, one of the challenges that we have with the energy sector is that not many of these companies tend to grow. And in fact, yeah, when I look back over my sort of 20 plus year career here, many of these companies are within 10 or 20 percent of where they were when I first started in 2002. So that, yes, they pay a decent income, but they're not they're not achieving much in terms of capital growth. And you know, we really want both. We do have one holding in the sector, um, which we think is one of the best companies in, in the sector. We think you know, they have very low extraction costs. They you know, produce a lot of cash. They've, they've historically generated good rates of return and, and paid a, a sort of attractive and growing dividend over time. So, look, it's, it, it's a sector that obviously you know, is not really in control of its own destiny as, as, as one might want. And yeah, as I say, it has lacked growth and obviously you know, is likely to continue to do so unless the oil price goes up a lot, which you know, none of us have much foresight or control over. So we prefer those companies, you know, many of the companies that we, we talked about earlier. I think there are some interesting assets in the sector, but it's not a sector that we, we want to get too carried away with. Okay, great stuff. Thanks so much, Stephen. You know, really useful and thought-provoking insights there, but and a shame, but we must uh, call time. If the audience would like to hear more from Stephen, they can write him a letter because he's not really motoring on LinkedIn yet, but you can certainly reach out to your Invesco relationship manager if you'd uh, like a response in a more timely manner. But other than that, our most important thanks goes out to you, the audience. Really appreciate your support and hopefully you'll join us next month for our next Time in the Market podcast. But until then, from Stephen and I, goodbye. Listeners should be aware of the following investment risks. The value of investments and any income will fluctuate. This may partly be the result of exchange rate fluctuations, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Other important information for listeners. This podcast is intended for UK professional clients only and is not for consumer use. Views and opinions are based on current market conditions and are subject to change. This is marketing material and not financial advice. It is not intended as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular asset class, security or strategy. Regulatory requirements that require impartiality of investment or investment strategy recommendations are therefore not applicable, nor are any prohibitions to trade before publication. Issued by Invesco Asset Management Limited, Perpetual Park, Perpetual Park Drive, Henley-on-Thames, Oxfordshire, RG91HH, UK. Authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority.